Hello, and welcome to Drug Fix, the Pink Sheets Pharma Regulatory Podcast. I'm Derek Ingery, a senior writer at the Pink Sheet, and I'm joined by fellow senior writer Sarah Carlin-Smith, senior editor Kathy Kelly, and executive editor Nielsen Hobbs. Today is December 16th, 2022, and this will likely be our last podcast of the year as the holiday season, season approaches in earnest. But we're still really excited about all the pharma news that emerged this week. First up is an interesting trend or not trend. The FDA likely will grant fewer accelerated approvals this year than previous years. Our colleague Mike McCann noted that mainstream media outlets highlighted the data, indicating that only 10 accelerated approvals had been granted as of December 7th, which is noticeably lower than previous years. The question is whether increased scrutiny of the pathway by members of Congress and other stakeholders influenced its use. McCann argues that the FDA likely is not backing off in its use of the expedited approval pathway. He argued that in the 2020 total of 44 accelerated approvals granted may be misleading. 19 of the approvals were de devoted to one drug, Merck's Keytruda, for a new dosing schedule for some indications. NME approvals overall also were down in 2022 compared to past years, another e potential explanation for the decline. He also said the traditional approval of Relivrio and ALS this year still included many of the tenets of an accelerated approval, suggesting the spirit of the accelerated approval uh, of the accelerated approval pathway is alive and well at the agency. So I'm curious about your thoughts on the subject. Do you think the FDA is getting gun shy? Could they get a little gun shy going forward? Is this just kind of a do you think this is just kind of a I don't know, just kind of a numbers game where it's just, you know, the numbers kind of wiggle year, you know, year in and year out. I mean, the obvious cult culprit uh, um, that, that people like to point the finger at is uh, Agihelm. And we've certainly heard uh, um, anecdotally that there are uh, conversations between sponsors and the FDA that have uh, happened since then, where sort of sponsors were expecting to be able to uh, perhaps use the uh, accelerated approval pathway. But uh um, the agency said uh, no, and that does seem to be uh, um, in keeping with uh, um, the uh, the you know the Agilehelm blowback that the uh, um, uh, FDA is is suffering after that sort of kind of uh, um, uh, somewhat sort of hand-fitted uh, um, approval and sort of the very poor reaction to uh, um, the uh, the uh, the product. Um, but it uh, in terms of sort of kind of a broader trend, like you would not see that manifesting in. Uh, few approvals already. It's just sort of it hasn't been long enough for sort of kind of the um the you know the biomarker uh, trials to sort of have been sort of kind of uh, you know launched and sort of come come to uh, application fruition uh, um since then. So I think the uh the alternate sort of kind of statistical fluke uh, explanation in uh, in addition to sort of uh the uh the changing attitudes in the uh, oncology center seem to be the uh, um the best explanation there. Uh, you know the overwhelming uh um, majority of uh, um, accelerated approvals into kind of the uh, the post HIV era. Um, ever since uh, HIV products uh, stopped being eligible for uh, accelerated approval, uh, have come from uh, um, uh, oncology. So uh, you know, I think through kind of the uh, the numbers are kind of live and die on uh, sort of what uh, what happens in cancer. So uh, um, and uh, um, we kind of know the story there. There's kind of been a uh, a real emphasis on uh, eliminating uh, dangling approvals and sort of kind of getting the um, the trials started, uh, you know, before uh, um, uh, accelerated approval. So we have the confirmatory data as so we're kind of uh, guaranteed to be on its way. Uh, um, and so I think that's uh, um, the story more than any kind of uh, uh, agile helm blowback. 
Yeah, I was going to say that I think um, if you are a regular podcast listener, you might have heard me disagree with Mike a time or two. Um, and, and this is a time where I think I, I, I very much kind of agree with his story in a lot of ways. Like, I, I feel like it's particularly focusing just on like the raw numbers is probably not going to give you a best sense of trends because, you know, as he even sort of points out in the story, you know, slight changes in numbers year to year may have not necessarily have a lot to do with sort of agency philosophy or, you know, standards as much as just what they're getting in, you know, and have t and are looking at any given year. And I think like something that maybe some of the stories he referenced maybe get a, a little bit confused. I think there's a difference between FDA thinking a bit differently on how it handles accelerated approval on the back end, you know, like post-market, how it sort of enforces when drugs maybe didn't meet the follow-through commitment and should need to be pulled versus how it's granting, you know, initial approval. And while there are certainly, I think, you know, as Matt talked a little bit about, there's been changes coming in the oncology space to try and make sure on both ends, you know, there's been a bit more rigor. Um, you know, I think for so far, what we've really seen is more effort to, you know, deal with products um, that have been sort of lagging in that lingering accelerated approval space too long. I don't think there's been as big of a shift in, you know, what is going through accelerated approval yet. So I think like it's important to kind of think a little bit different, a bit about, you know, again, kind of um, the two sides of that accelerated co coin and how the agency handles it a bit differently. So I thought that was kind of important to think about when reading the story and sort of the, some of the um, things like the journal story and AP story were flagging. Yeah, I was kind of thinking the same way you were, Sarah, that the, you know, the, the, the trend here might be, you know, kind of whether the, you know, or at least uh, something to watch as we see more of these outside of oncology is, you know, is the, is the oncology philosophy sort of filtering out to the other review divisions, you know, where, and Rick Pazder has been um, the head of the Oncology Center of Excellence has been real vocal about this, saying like, you know, we want confirmatory studies started before we grant the approval. You know, we're going to, he's been very vocal, as Matt said, about, you know, when confirmatory trials fail, we're not going to, you know, we're, we're not going to let you keep this on the market. We're going to ask you, we're going to push you to withdraw it. We're going to do what we need to do, you know, in, in those, in those situations. So you got to wonder if, if oncology is going to be kind of the lead, the leader at the FDA on this, if some of the other divisions are going to kind of pick up that mantle and, you know, see kind of, you know, maybe adopt, I don't know if you want to call it a best practice or something like that, but, um, you know, kind of adopt the same posture and, you know, or maybe if, you know, someone like the, the Office of New Drugs or something, uh, you know, kind of puts out, uh, you know, starts talking to their, um, you know, the division directors about, you know, thinking about accelerated approval you know, in that way. Yeah, I mean, I think I, it's hard to say. I mean, certainly I, I think we see a, a lot of times, and I was thinking about this a bit um, in a story we'll talk about at the end of the podcast with my outcome, is just like different um, divisions seem to, at FDA, um, depending on the therapeutic and just what's available for the disease, you know, how, you know, just how the disease impacts people, you know, they, there's definitely a lot of flexibility that's sort of been a buzzword at FDA <laughs> over the past, you know, few months, but in the FDA regulations for them to sort of think about different therapeutic areas differently. And it does seem like you get, um, you know, certain divisions just sort of 
practice and think about this differently. And, you know, I think for rather for potentially very good reasons, you know, we might see the neurology division be a bit different um, and how it considers and handles accelerated approval given when you're talking about Alzheimer's, given, you know, we still really have a dearth of good therapies or, I mean, and really um, only one approved therapy that, you know, is hopeful it modifies the course of disease. So, um, you know, that's a bit different than some of the cancer indications. Um, Rick Passer's division is looking at that, um, even though there's still lots of, you know, need and unmet need, there may be, you know, half a dozen options patients have, at least in their, you know, hand, I guess, at the moment for them to use. So, you know, if maybe if Congress, you know, does anything that would sort of force different parts of the FDA to standardize, that's one way we might see standardization. But I think, you know, just the way FDA likes it, they like to have a lot of flexibility um, to handle each drug in each particular case, um, you know, kind of on its own merits. Yeah, it's an interesting issue, you know, and something that, you know, I'm sure everyone's going to be watching closely. We'll be watching over the next couple of weeks to see if, you know, legislative changes to the pathway get adopted or get enacted by Congress. So, uh, you know, there might be more to report, uh, you know, in January once, you know, we start thinking thinking about how, you know, we are coming to the new year and, and uh, the next uh, class of therapeutics starts moving through. Next up, we're going to take a look at a new proposed rule that could make a lot of people in the generic industry happy. Kathy, you've looked at this regulation requiring generic tiers and some insurance plans. What did you find out? Yeah, the the um, proposed rule applies to just a slice of the commercial market um, plans that are offered through the the marketplaces that were established by the Affordable Care Act. Um, but it does it does highlight a, a problem, you know, industry wide, and that is. Um, you know, generic drugs ending up on high cost sharing tiers. And those are, you know, the tiers where, uh, you know, me uh, plan members have to pay more out of pocket. Their copay or co-insurance is higher. Um, and then a brand might end up on the lowest cost sharing tier. So it would, in essence, sort of flip the way it should work. But, but it happens because of rebating <laughs> where, you know, Brands offer PBMs, um, you know, uh, attractive rebates to get pre preferable placement, um, and so that's that's how they end up on the low tier, and they're, the generic will end up on a high tier. So, in this proposal, which was issued as part of an annual um, sort of policy uh, rule that uh, CMS puts out. Um, generic drugs would have to be placed on the generic tier, which is traditionally the lowest cost sharing tier. Um, and it'll be interesting to see how, you know, how that plays out and if if that could be some kind of a, you know, a, a model or whatever for other parts of the market. Now, CMS doesn't have jurisdiction over, you know, say employer-sponsored insurance, but but it does over Part D and the the problem of generics ending up on high higher tiers is even more pervasive in Part D, um, and that's because of the structure of the benefit. And without getting too far into the weeds, it has to do with the the coverage gap and the 70% discount on brands in the coverage gap, and that has led to, you know, uh, plan sponsors wanting to prefer brands, um, but 
the the redesign of the benefit that you know was implemented as part of the Inflation Reduction Act eliminates the coverage gap, eliminates that 70% discount. So we could see this issue being addressed that way. The, the, other, the other part of this story was about kind of a related guidance that CMS put out also to the, well, in this case, it was a letter to the sponsors of plans for these marketplace um, plans. And um, CMS kind of warned that in in the future, as part of their regular review of formularies, which it which it does do, um, it's going to pay more attention to instances where plans are putting all drugs, including generics, for a particular condition on the highest cost sharing tier, and they're doing it to to discourage enrollment in the plan by people with certain conditions and. HIV AIDS um, patient advocacy groups have been really vocal about this um, and have filed complaints and um, and here they so they were I think pleased to see this this policy again it's a proposed policy and CMS will take comments on it but um, the the conditions that they're going to focus on as part of this review include HIV AIDS also um, rheumatoid arthritis um, hepatitis C and uh, MS, multiple sclerosis. So, um, you know, that could that could help um, fix, again, a, a structure that the industry, I mean, the um, administration and the, the agency sees as discriminatory. Kathy, I had two questions for you based on your story. Uh-huh. I guess one thing I was um, interested in is, I guess some of the requirements related to the tiering, it's your story says like they're for standardized plans. Yes. Does that mean that, so this, this only applies to certain segments yeah. of the plans? And well, then is that yeah. difficult for like consumers to figure out like, I yeah. guess like I, how does that like, imp- does, yeah. I guess I'm just trying to figure out like as a consumer, how do you then figure out like when you're comparing right. plans or how do you know whether you want a standardized plan or not and so forth? Yeah. Well, it uh, the standardized plan, each each um, issuer, they call them, these are the plan sponsors, have to have a standardized plan. And the, the purpose of that is so that um, uh, potential enrollees can look at healthcare.gov and sort of compare plans more easily. Now, how much latitude um, sponsors have to vary from that, I'm actually not sure. But I think the the, the purpose is to give enrollees or potential enrollees a, a good enough idea of the the coverage that they can make a selection in that in that case um, so yeah these th- this policy would apply to those standardized plans and then my other question i guess was in thinking about this there's it seems like the story says like there are some cases where generics can still be placed in a specialty tier like are there particular requirements that would let a generic be placed there? And does is the generic specialty tier have to come with like a lower copay than a brand specialty tier? Or is that still a place where they may end up being on the same tier as a brand? They do, well, I guess they do allow it in certain cases, but it has to be based on clinical considerations. They didn't really define what that is in this rule. Um, and actually, I'm not sure about the the cost sharing. Normally, specialty tier drugs do have higher cost sharing. Often, it's a like a coinsurance, which would be a percentage of, of the drug's price. Um, so 
I, I think it could happen. I'm not sure, you know, I, I can't give you an example of the yeah. type of drug that that, that would apply to, but um, my impression is that that would be sort of an unusual situation. Okay. Yeah. I was just yeah. wondering, like, it's like one of those things where it seemed like they've sort of tried to solve the problem, but it, I could still almost see a few like holes in their yeah. plans in the yeah. story, which yeah. is what, where those like questions sort of came in, I guess. Yeah. It's interesting that, you know, both these issues have been floating around, I would say, uh, almost since the uh, advent of the, uh, um, the ACA, certainly, uh, um, you know, the, uh, the protections for uh, you know, chronic use drugs, uh, um, uh, HIV uh, um, uh, patients in particular have been sort of very concerned about uh, um, about that. And uh, just yeah. another example is we're going to how these, uh, um, you know, policy uh, um, uh, processes can, can take take time, but these were going to have uh, major impacts at the uh, um, at the end. And it was uh, nice to see them as this were kind of give uh, um, you know, for pharmacists were both, uh, I suppose, a uh, a win and a loss there. They'll probably get some more uh, um, uh, coverage because of the um, the, you know, the chronic use uh, um, oversight and, uh, you know, they may uh, lose some coverage by the uh, the generic tier uh, um access uh, uh growing so uh, um yeah it's uh, one of these we're kind of uh, you know it's been uh, been under the radar for almost a decade and now it's going to be a uh, um a big deal for folks but uh, um it's uh, um goes to show you can't you can't give up on these policy things because they, they 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 can eventually shift so yeah i think with the biden administration's focused on discrimination in healthcare that some of these arguments that patient groups have been making for years you know did really resonate more with the administration and so that was helpful i would say so kathy you expect you're expecting this to be finalized um for in time for 2024 i would think so i guess we'll we'll see how you know how the comments come in but um you know i would think so yeah I, i'm i'm guessing that you know there, there'll be somebody out there who doesn't like it. You know, yeah. there always is. But, you right. know, I mean, it, there isn't going to be a whole bunch of you. I mean, I don't know how much, you know, pushback some of these ideas get and, you know, whether or not CMS is like the, you know, interest in dropping them if they if it's like a or something like that. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I guess the PBMs probably won't be too happy about the generic drug thing, but it does seem like kind of a tough argument to make does seem pretty reasonable that generic drugs should be on the lowest cost sharing tier. <laughs> so, yeah, you you would think that the the drugs that cost the least, you know, right. on average, right. would would actually be on should, the, the should tier. cost. Yeah, well, should be, yeah. <laughs> I mean, particularly when you think about like state auto substitution laws, right? Because they're sort of designed to, you know, you can get your drug out, your drug can be sort of substituted, right, for the generic mm -hmm. without your really knowing it. And the idea is, right, is that that's because it's the same and it's cheaper and everybody saves money. And it right. seems like a bit of a consumer almost, I'm not sure what the, but that seems kind of unfair to the consumer, <laughs> you know, yeah. if, if something like that is happening and they're not aware that, that you know, they actually could be you know, uh -huh. the substitution could be creating a financial, you know, harm for them. Uh-huh. Yeah. Yeah, definitely an interesting thing that we'll be we'll be watching, especially as the plans get designed for the next for 2024, which I'm I think is probably actually not that far off if you think about it. So mm -hmm. yeah. Finally, we're going to take a look at Cytokinetics proposed heart failure treatment, Omec 
Cam Tiv McCarble, I butchered that, which went before an, an advisory committee this week. Uh, Sarah, it sounds like the committee didn't really give a favorable recommendation. Right. The committee did not give a favorable recommendation. I mean, leading into it, FDA's preview documents and their presentation did not seem particularly favorable either. So it wasn't particularly surprising. The vote was eight to three. Um, basically, what happened was um, Cytokinetics conducted a single phase three study for the drug. And uh, leading into um, this, you know, in pre-phase three and so forth, FDA very clearly laid out um, sort of the statistical um, standards the trial would need to meet to meet FDA's, um, you know, substantial evidence threshold for approval based on a sole phase three trial. And while the drug did meet its primary endpoint in the trial, it did not meet it to the standards FDA had laid out um, in that, you know, pre-phase three in terms of getting that approval on just one phase three and, um, you know, the drug, it was a composite endpoint and it hit it, but, and one of the issues is it hit it, but the sort of, that was driven by sort of events like keeping patients or patient visits to hospitals and emergency rooms or um, urgent care was the word I was looking at, things like that. It didn't really hit it in terms of preventing more serious outcomes like cardiovascular death and so forth. So that was, you know, I think um, a big detractor for the FDA. And then the company didn't really have any other, you know, sometimes you can do one phase three study and get it approved if you have other supportive evidence, even if that one phase three isn't quite enough on its own to get it across the line. And Basically, FDA um, said and the advisory panel seemed to agree that the phase two data um, the company had um, to could not, you know, help get it across the finish line. The phase two data was mostly um, sort of looking at kind of various lab values and markers related to heart failure, not, you know, hard clinical endpoints and none of the um, markers they were looking at in phase two are sort of considered, you know, proven surrogates um, related to the disease. And so, you know, it seemed like cytokinetics came into the meeting kind of, you know, obviously knowing that they had had these conversations with FDA, didn't quite meet the um, standard FDA was hoping for. But I think what they were trying to do was make an argument that, you know, they found a sort of subpopulation where um, the benefit risk profile did seem to be particularly favorable. And they weren't actually even asking for a label that would just <laughs> approve the drug for that, but they seemed to want to, you know, kind of have some caveats in the labeling to sort of direct it to that patient population. Either way, FDA and the committee, um, again, did not feel that, you know, they had met the mark to gain, you know, approval even in just this subpopulation. There was also another um, sort of big um, secondary issue outside from the fact that they, um, you know, only had this one phase three that wasn't as great as it really needed to be, which was in their phase three trial um, due to kind of a long known history of potential cardiotoxicity with this drug. If it's given in the wrong doses, um, dosing was carefully monitored. Um, with pharmacokinetic testing, 
And um, FDA had again indicated to the company, you know, you're probably going to basically need to get a companion diagnostic um, approved in conjunction with the drug for this to be, you know, administered safely. The company initially wasn't proposing you know, really any sort of test be used to help with dosing post-market. Eventually, they basically sort of pivoted and said, okay, let's use this lab-developed test. Um, and FDA's position um, is, is basically that, you know, that's not going to be acceptable enough. You really need a formal companion diagnostic for, you know, safety um, to be properly handled in the real world. So that was like, I think, another um, major issue and one you don't see as often, I think, in some of these advisory committees. But yeah, it was just, um, it was pretty clear they were, there was going to be a high bar here um, for them that to somehow convince the advisory committee that the FDA's opinion was, you know, not um, the correct one. And it just wasn't there. I mean, even the um, handful of advisors who voted yes in some ways were similar to the no voters in that, you know, they were more only really willing to vote yes. And they sort of had caveats around their vote where again, they'd at least, they'd want it at least restricted to that sort of subpopulation the company identified that seemed to be doing better. And they also would want like this better dose monitoring in the real world and other things that I'm not even sure the company is, would be totally prepared to do yet, <laughs> you know, if everybody had voted yes in that way. So um, they weren't even quite voting yes for like the broad application the company came to FDA with. Sarah, is this a, a instance in which sort of a, uh, you know, a, a sponsor sort of, you know, should have just kind of dialed back their expectations and perhaps uh, avoided sort of a, uh, uh, you know, a, a, a sour advisory committee had they sort of kind of proposed, you know, the more limited indi indication would they have, you know, perhaps made progress with FDA or is this just sort of this really had to sort of go back to the drawing board and sort of kind of uh, do a new study regardless of sort of kind of how uh, um, how they uh, um, how they uh, talk to the agency. Yeah, I mean, I guess I sort of did have this at the back of my mind as to why did they go through with filing the application, why did they not go back to the table and talk with FDA about, you know, we still believe in this drug, what kind, what else do we need to do to really get a successful application um, in the door? Because again, maybe we're missing some sort of post phase three conversations with the company and the agency that made them think it made sense to file the application, but it seems like there was potentially some, you know, agency and their time wasted going through this whole process rather than just maybe getting another phase three up and running. I mean, I do think the advisory panel offered some interesting advice. I'm not sure if FTA already offered this or would have too in terms of ways they could do another phase three that might not be quite as like burdensome, um, both in terms of like time it takes to conduct and the amount of patients that would need to be involved that might like give them a path forward that's maybe not as big of a barrier. So yeah, it'll be interesting to see if this com the company, you know, goes back and, um, you know, does go through with another phase three, because I think there, there were lots of committee members that were hopeful there is a population that could make use of this drug, um, but they just need to, you know, really figure out exactly who that is and, you know, have this sort of plan to do the safe monitoring and dosing. And um, I mean, there's some interesting background with the product in terms of, you know, they, um, after the phase three, did not 
you know, get the strong results they were hoping for. They lost their big pharma partner in Amgen. Um, so I, I don't know like how much some of just like the different, you know, the business um, dynamics also played into their decisions. And even, you know, obviously I would imagine Amgen had a different level of like regulatory expertise and thinking about how to deal with FDA than cytokinetics might have and how if Amgen had stuck with them, maybe would this, you know, would be, be in a sort of a different situation now or um, have the, would they have pursued a different path um, was things I was kind of wondering going, you know, covering this product. Yeah, I was going to bring up the regulatory history too, Sarah, because it, it, you know, it was interesting. That, I mean, their IND was put on hold over cardiovascular concerns, which is kind of an unusual thing to see with a heart failure drug. You know, and, and you mentioned that. I mean, I guess there was another, there was a an April study failed, you know, related to the drug too. I mean, you got to wonder if, I mean, I, I don't know. I'm not going to pretend to to know what's going, you know, to be a drug development expert or anything. But, you know, all, all these things, you wonder if they're still going to be interested in doing the work kind of going forward to get this approved, if they can get it approved. Yeah, it will be interesting. You know, I do think um, one thing the company was definitely commended for highly and, and you know, was that they did really run a very, um, for the most part, I think, a solid initial phase three and and both in terms of, I think, size and just the conduct of it. I think um, people said this was maybe one of the largest ever studies in heart failure, if not maybe in the top two. So, um, you know, this they didn't necessarily try to skimp on the work (laughs) and the front end. It just, you know, unfortunately, I think science and medicine is what it is, you know. Um, But um, like I said, there it did seem to be like that from if you believe sort of some of the hypotheses out of this phase three, that maybe it's more a more narrow um, heart failure patient population that this may be useful in, that they may, again, going forward, not have to do such a burdensome phase three if they can kind of enrich their study and so forth. Um, you know, that'll should get be able to get them results faster if they're willing to do that. The other thing I didn't bring up and FDA danced, I think, tried to like dance around it at the meeting a little bit, but the advisors were more interested in it is through no fault of their own kind of these diabetes drugs, SGLT2 inhibitors have been repurposed for um, Alzheimer's, I mean, Alzheimer's, ooh, heart failure <laughs> since, <laughs> um, since um, <laughs> you know, um, their study was done and I think like their study had like a very small percentage of patients um, that had these drugs as one of their background therapies. So, you know, I think another concern of the advisors was, you know, would be really helpful to have another trial where um, patients were sort of on the best medical therapy available today, (laughs) Um, which in many cases for some patients would include these drugs. And there were some other drugs, I think um, some advisors questioned whether, you know, the patients were getting you know, to the maximal extent they should have before this drug was added on. So, I mean, that's always a tricky situation for a sponsor. Again, you can't necessarily control shifts in standard of care, or, you know, shifts in the treatment field that happen um, during your trial. Those can be really hard to to deal with. And so, again, I don't think anybody faulted them for the fact that so few patients in their study were um, using these SGL2 drugs as part of their background treatment, but that was like another, I think, 
that was a smaller factor and you know the problems they had leading into this but all these little things kind of added up for them too yeah it's a another kind of one of these i mean we've seen these before where you know they kind of the sponsor kind of runs out you know goes through all this and then you know um you know for one reason or another just can't get it over the finish line and you know and it's clear what they kind of need to do and the question will be once again do they want to do it so We'll be following this one going forward as well. So it should be, uh, you know, it will be interesting to see if they come back. Well, that's all for this week. For more, check out our website at www.thepinksheet.com. You can also find this in previous podcast episodes on iTunes, Google Play, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Spotify by searching for Pharma Intelligence. And if you're so inclined, feel free to give us a review. Thanks again for listening to Drug Fix. I'm Derek Ingery with Sarah Carlin-Smith, Kathy Kelly, and Matt Hobbs. Stay safe, or Happy New Year, stay safe, get vaccinated, and we'll see you next time.